Hey everyone, welcome back to Very Heroic Living. As we head into the holiday season, traveling to visit loved ones, it feels right to drop this next episode. Considering our next guest is my teacher, I'd like to just take a moment for a dedication to all the family members and caregivers out there. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce my friend and fellow warrior, my mom, Marilene Puente Heisler. I told you I was thinking about these things, but I wasn't really sure. So I wanted you here for the... (laughs) Maybe I can hide behind the glasses. I tell you what, if you're going to hide behind yours, I'm going to hide behind mine. No, these are my reading glasses. These are my reading glasses. These are my speaking glasses, as Aaron will tell you. (laughs) Speaking (laughs) glasses. Nobody can hurt me behind these shades. (laughs) Oh, man. Listen, listen. As a VHL patient, there's a lot of jokes that can be pulled from this later about my speaking glasses, because for some of us, that's about all they're good for. The speaking? Well, yeah. I mean, you'll we'll get it. You'll get it later. Morbidity. Morbidity. They had a ser- horrible sense of humor. Well, they didn't have a horrible sense of humor, but they would wake up and joke about this situation. And I used to think there three of them are sick. And I, I'm not a morning person. I like my coffee. I like my quiet. And they would be joking at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And it was just really warped. It's like it's a little heavy for a Sunday morning, way fellas. Too, yeah. Way too much. Way too Fair much. enough. Warped. All right. Fair enough. All right. Yeah, but you have to, you got to respect being woken up at 3.30 in the morning every week or days in a row or whatever it was when we got started. I can't even remember the frequency, right? But like we used to go for our Will's Eye appointments at... 3.34 in the morning, we'd have to leave for Philly because our appointments were first thing in the morning because they wanted us to be the 7 a.m. appointment and the 7.05 appointment so that they could take us into the rooms together and have the, the caravans of doctors and residents all come through and look at these two boys and, and their dad and these rare tumors and, ooh, right, we do the guinea pig conversation, yeah, right? So I think a lot of the early mornings comes from at 7 in the morning, we were telling the worst jokes. Michael and I were in the back of the rooms playing with the magnifying glasses and the dilating drops. Did you ever tell them how much crap you stole from Wheels <laughs> Eye? I don't know. They stole instruments and gla- uh, ball, you know, the ball of the eye where it comes in pieces. They, have a, they had a collection. <laughs> they would come back from these appointments with stolen items. <laughs> we, got a, we got a Will's Eye shelf. Yeah. We felt, we felt like we deserved something. Mr. Of his little boys yeah. and mischievous yeah. little boys yeah. decided that the thing we deserved was mementos. Yeah, we have plenty of mementos. Um, we returned a few that maybe had you know a little more value than we should have taken in the first place. Um, but you know, there may be a magnifying glass and a and a, I think a model of a, a perfect replica of an eye. You do, yeah, yeah. So that's what she's been through. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Aside from the stress of VHL and all that, she has to wake up with three Capricorn men in the house three telling Capricorn. the same joke. We're, tell, we're all telling the same joke. You know, Aries and Capricorns do not go together. Goat and the the goat and the ram. Are you an Aries? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. So listen to what she just said. Right. A goat and a ram. Like you. It's it, yeah. In, right. In my mind, I picture you know in the style of. Uh, Dogs playing poker. Right? We all know yeah. dog. We all know dogs playing poker. Yeah, I think we've all had the poster at one point or another. <laughs> so I, I picture, uh, I picture in that kind of style painting a goat and a ram, like uh, at a boxing weigh-in. Mm. It's about to go down. Mm-hmm. Everything's still cool and quiet, but not you know, not for long. Why are you guys clashing so much? Right. So somewhere in that conversation, the goat and the ram were like, "Hey, you want to do it?" <laughs> This took a turn. This took a turn. (laughs) So instead of a fight, (laughs) see, I don't know much about the signs and the seasons and all that. I'm a Taurus, and I know I act according to what they say Tauruses are, but I don't know like who interacts well with others and all that. I don't know anything about it. That's a whole other topic. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it is. (laughs) All jokes aside, morbidity is probably like the number one conversation for VHL patients for years. So maybe we could talk about that for a quick second without getting too dark about it. Yeah, we can talk about anything you want. So so dark humor, morbid jokes, and morbidity is a medical concept. Morbidity is starting to have the conversation of how 
many of us aren't going to make it and what tumors are going to cause what problems and lifespans being cut short. And that conversation is probably the biggest conversation I think that's shifting right now with this new drug. Mm. And right before we came over here, you and I started talking a little bit about your weekend and what you've been thinking about your kind of fears, right? So we've been trying to remain stable while we ride this weird new wave of excitement. And as we all get really excited about the concept of maybe no tumors, maybe no, right? Yeah, I see you shaking your head, right? So like, I think you and I are the, this is a good opportunity to talk about it a little bit because I don't really get to talk about how do we keep that equanimity between being really excited and just realistic about the fact that not that much is changing for most of us, including me, even having a few years where it's been successful. When all this transpired so many years ago, I never went to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I refused to sit and talk about this over and over again. I had enough dealings with insurance companies. Just telling the story over and over again. Right. We all talked about it at home, and they had their warped sense of humor. But it isn't until recently that I was asked the question, what was the biggest thing, what was the biggest challenge as a caregiver? And I said, fear. Because I lived with fear of someone dying for so many years. First, before they got diagnosed, their father, after the first surgery, um, you know, they did a section because they thought it was a malignancy. And I overheard the doctors talking. And when I found out what he had, basically Joe had about three to six months to live. And then it took a month before the report came back. The biopsy was, the report of the biopsy came back because the pathologist passed away. So the, the, there was a delay in his biopsy. Wow. So a month later, it comes back as a benign tumor. However, it was the size of an orange. And he goes back into surgery a month later for 18 hours. And I'm being treated as, you know, you talk about having to deal with morbidity. You have to deal with these doctors and interns talking to you like you don't know, you know, you're just basically a wife and a mother and you don't know, don't ask the questions. And the thought of death was always, has always been with me. As the years have gone by, and I would tell you in the last 20 years, my life has been about accepting impermanence. Mm. It happens all the time. You're constantly in a state of impermanence. So this morning I was telling Joseph that one of the things I just realized that I wanted to talk to my teacher about was I'm thrilled that this drug came out. However, it hasn't changed anything in their lives. Right. Everything is still the same. Mm -hmm. The beauty of this particular drug is that you have been, you know, this tumor has reduced in size. He's had, he has a success story, but it doesn't mean something else couldn't happen. You still have this lingering thought that right. all's not well yet. It's not. Yeah. The gene's still there. The gene can still whatever it does, whatever it does when mm -hmm. it wants to. But you think about it a little different. But it takes a lot of years to get to that place in your mind of somewhat of an acceptance of impermanence. It's constantly changing. And so morbidity has changed maybe for me, the meaning of it has. And sometimes I miss you guys when you're not waking up in the morning with their warped jokes, <laughs> you know, because now I can, I've taken me this long to learn their sarcasm and joking, you know, I can do that now. But I think a lot of individuals are still in that place. And just from the couple of people that I had the opportunity to listen to the other night when you had me on that thing, on that show, and it made me really sad because... I would love to give them the tools and the techniques that I brought back to the boys and Joe and to myself. It, all it was all about them. To take away some of that morbidity and know that there are techniques that can calm you and put you in a different place of acceptance. I think most of what the other VHL patients talked about on that call that you were on was the networking call the night before the family meeting. Right. Saturday's family meeting with all the doctors doing okay. doing their pieces, you know, their different topics and that networking call the night before, especially because it's usually a cocktail hour in person. 
Uh, where basically right, everybody right, right. just gets an open-ended you know end to this party right show up at seven o'clock and stay till whenever you want and all these vhl patients get an opportunity to talk to each other share their stories kind of reconnect or connect with new people um because a lot of these folks have actually been in the alliance for a bunch of years now but they only see each other once or twice a year they actually see each other more often now virtually because that's all they have. Well, yeah, because now oh. all the because you, it used to be okay, right? Let's have a we'll have a, a phone call every month. We'll see each other these couple times a year. Now they don't get to see each other those couple times a year. So all those phone calls are Zoom meetings. So I feel like the community's actually gotten closer because of this virtual world. Oddly, so as what was it, available to them prior to that? Just once, once in a while, once a year. Phone, well, think about it. Before we had any virtual communication, everything was phone calls, and once a year they had the annual, the family weekend, the meeting, and they kind of put it all together. Now they've separated things a little bit so that we're not sitting in front of Zoom for you know Saturday was an eight hour day. Right. They're not trying to do that all the time, right. but they used to get together and have like a two or three day event. I thought it was a weekly kind of thing that they no, had. No, so wow. there are monthly phone calls. There's a so every month, Josh. This is this is where I was talking to you about Josh. The community knows Josh. This is how the community knows Josh. Josh hosts three or four monthly phone calls, and has been for a while now. There's a patient phone call. There's a, there's a patient caregiver phone call. There's a low and no vision phone call. There's a parents of VHLers phone call, and those are every month. Recently, they started the cohort program, and this is the one that they they kind of marketed it as for new VHL patients, but there are a couple of us that aren't new VHL patients. We've been talking about how everybody needs to know about the cohort program because we're learning about everything. Even if it's not new information, it's all current, and we get to hear it. You know, like Dr. Iliopoulos spoke to us directly. That's incredible. There was an eight-person group getting spoken to directly, and we had a question and answer with Dr. Iliopoulos. Leona, who's the life coach for the VHLA. Okay, right, right. I had the breakout session with Leona. You had the breakout session because I went for patients. Leona's a patient, right? And her and her husband deals more with caregivers, right? So that was a really big deal because in the cohort program, Leona was there the week before. So there are people who don't have any. So back to back to the stress. That's, that's what really got me on this. So people don't really have a way to manage the stress. You saw this, right? That's what, that's what brought me to this, right? All these tools. So Aaron and I got, I think Boston was a really good trip for us to get to know each other a little better, right? After a lot of years. And I got to talk a lot about yoga and Reiki and time in the jungle and learning about medicine and myself and like dealing with the morbidity. And I think we touched on a lot of the everyday stuff that people deal with, right? Without being clinically anything, right? Everybody deals with some depression. Everybody deals with some anxiety. Everybody deals with some stress. Everybody deals with happiness. Everybody deals with coming down from happiness. It's just like daily things that happen that it would be nice to learn how to just ride a little bit more comfortably through all of it. Most people don't understand depression. You say you're depressed, but they really don't have a clue what you're talking about until okay. they experience it. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like I said, in hindsight, all these years, you know, the approaches that I did not have. Right. I always felt alone. I couldn't talk to Papa about it because he was the carrier. Yeah. You were my babies. I cried in the shower. That was where I released everything. You must have felt very, very lonely. I did. And yeah. that's where I reached out when I found this, um, this place in Pennsylvania. I was reading... Uh, Love, Life, and Medicine, I think it was, by Bernie Sigel. He's a, I think he was a urologist or is. I'm not sure if he's, if, if he's still here. But I called him up. He was at, teaching at Harvard or Yale, one of the two. And he called me back. I was shocked. You know, you had no connection to him? You no. just kind of I read the book and I thought yeah. he's teaching. He's giving, you know, yeah. workshops at, you know, one of these universities. I'm going to find out. Because everything that he had in the book fit to what I was looking for, for therapy. Got it. So I found him and he called me back and I was, and he gave me the name of this place, uh, Creative Energy Options in Pennsylvania. And there was this woman named Maggie. That's how you found That's Maggie. That's how I found Maggie. Wow. Yeah. It's a whole nother conversation, maybe later today, maybe <laughs> not, about her contacting doctors out of the blue 
and they called back. Yeah, right. It's like its own topic. So we got to talk about Maggie. Right. So starting with Maggie, I had no. Okay, so Maggie. So I go see Maggie and I take the boys to see Maggie, you know, because I think, dear God, you know, they need therapy. And Joe, the, the family goes and, you know, Maggie throws them in a room with these huge pads and all kinds of coloring while Joe and I are sitting with her talking and they're on, on the floor coloring. And uh, we were there about two hours and Joe said, I'm not coming back here. You know, I don't need this. Your father. And then she looked at your drawings, which were quite wild. I still have them. <laughs> oh, God. Can we see but them? But they were beautiful. They were all these. colors. They were not dark. And Maggie said, they're fine. Whatever it is you're doing, you're going to have to keep doing because the colors were what told her they were not in a dark place. That's now, interesting. There were a lot of eyes and monsters. Right. Okay. But they were great. And then she said to me and you, she said, I've got this, this, um, it was called holotropic breathwork. And I think that would really be what you need because I did not want to talk. You didn't. No, I didn't want to talk about this story. I wanted to move fast and get it done. And I had two, two little boys to deal with and a husband, you know, this was big, but, but at this point I knew what they had at this point. I already knew I had already spent a week at the, uh, NCI NIH library studying what this was. I already knew so much. I needed help. So holotropic breathwork is a practice that you don't ingest anything, but you actually all take to yourself to an altered state through the breath. And it was a two-hour session with music and breath. And when I realized, I mean, it took me back to my birth. That's how deep you go with this practice. In what sense? The birth canal being born. You pictured it? Oh, you experience it. You literally, you know, when I, when I came out of this altered state, and you're aware of everything, but when you come out of that altered state, I was in the fetal position. <laughs> and Maggie said to me, I want you to ask your mother how your birth was and when were you born, blah, blah, blah. Well, my mother, I, I was induced. And Maggie said, you came in early. You weren't supposed to come in yet. But my mother had to be induced for you know, medical reasons. And that's how Maggie and my relationship began. And I was no longer there for them. I was there for me. Mm -hmm. We stopped going more or less right after that because we were... You were okay. okay. You, yeah. You were. And by my us. getting good, well, you know, I could. I didn't want to take pills. I didn't want tranquilizers. You know, I've always said that's for fun. You want to do that? You want to do it for fun, <laughs> but not for <laughs> something else. We agree on strongly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> those are not tools. No. So she's the one. And I remember maybe my fourth session. She said to me, "I know you might want to hit me when I say this to you, but what your family has given you is a gift." And I realized what a gift it was, what they did, be, not what they did, the, the condition that they have actually took me to an incredible journey. And it was all because of them. It was for them. And we got to go for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we talked a little bit about how obviously this diagnosis and this condition has Define much of your life, Joe, and your brother. I guess your father as well. I guess I don't know. He didn't really affect him till later in life, right? Yeah. So it hits dad when he's what thirty three, right? Right. So yeah. So you know, he lost his dad when he was in his twenties. Oh, that that's wow. a big deal for anybody. Yeah, yeah. Right. He had other things happen in what you call like a normal, healthy life. Yeah. You know, but VHL didn't strike until. He's already married. He's already got kids. Like, but but then there's that side of it, and I think that's actually one day we'll have to get him in here a little bit, and I'll have to pry a little bit maybe to talk about his side of it. But he's got the experience that VHL patients typically have. The average age of diagnosis is a symptomatic something. Something's happening, whether it's whatever whatever the tumor is, it's causing some kind of problem. So you have to go to a doctor, like my father, having headaches and all that. So he has this the um, situation of the patient later in life. All of a sudden, everything changes. Your whole world's been flipped upside down, right? Mm -hmm. And you know what? Well, a, a side note to a side note to a side note. Um, we're speaking with my mother, Marirene, but she's mommy. Aaron, say that three times real fast. <laughs> Ooh, he's on the spot. He can't edit this Maradene? Maradene? Did I get it? It's pretty good. It's, it's better than most. Yeah. <laughs> But this is mommy. 
and and she needs to be addressed as such to everybody else because I want the listeners to know that it's really important because I'm going to be right. 41 in a little while and mommy needs to know that I still say it like that in front of, you know, in, in a public setting. Um, so, all right. So <laughs> I get her with this every now and then. She loves it. Are you embarrassed by it, mommy? No, I love it that yeah. he calls me mommy, but I know that people think of it. You know, the relationship that I have with both he and Michael, especially Joseph, because he's five years older, you know, I know that people look at it as, you know, unusual, but I didn't have daughters. I had sons. And I think it's so healthy to have relationships with your sons and not have that stigma, except it really just happens in this country. The rest of the world, you know, they put the mother here up above, mm -hmm. you know, because of who she is and she brings life and it's not as ridiculous as it is in this country. The Western mentality is just unhealthy. Yeah. We don't value women the same. No. Yeah. Aaron, no. you could tell me the truth. You've known me for a long time. Have I ever really been a mommy's boy? Mom, <laughs> you know, like... That's all I've known you as, man. For as long as I've known you, your mom's been your, your right hand. So I, I kind of want to just touch on, I guess, because we, we discussed it a little bit about how it was defining for you as a caretaker when this comes in and rocks your world. And you mentioned that, you know, it's kind of a gift. It's like your, your life went a different route that maybe it wouldn't have gone. I mean, what I was fascinated with in speaking with Joe in our early discussions of the show is the trip to the jungle and the therapy that was done there. Do you go back there if, when, if this doesn't happen? When this happened, this was in 89. It was a crazy year because Joe, who I had already known, been with, married, and as a girlfriend for 15 years, he starts acting really weird. Just out of the blue? Out of the blue, he starts acting really weird. And I yelled at him one time and I said, you know, you probably have a so-and-so headache, a brain tumor. This is what I'm thinking because he was eating aspirins and drinking way too much beer that I had not seen in 15 years. Mm. And so one day he goes to the doctors and there it is. Of course, I want to just crawl under the floor, you know, after I had said that. Right. When the boys got diagnosed in March, which was a, a really strange way of how they got died. I mean, I don't know if you guys talked about that. No, but let's, we'll go. Let me go. Let like me stay with that. Notes for later. So I started, yeah, I started the foundation because I had to, you know, with the backup of NCI and NIH, they were supportive, both, you know, the scientists and the clinical side, they were supportive of it. I did it for about four years and then, you know, circumstances just didn't work out. Um, and then in 96, um, no, no, I apologize. In 90, in 90, I took, uh, Michael was, had just turned five years old, 91, 91, January of 91. I took Michael to Central America because I knew that they were what they call curanderos, healers. They referred to as curanderos. So I went back to Guatemala and I had been there the year in 88. So I knew I had connections already. My curiosity, don't even know why I went that route before this happened. And so I went down there and I met this, you know, I knew that this man was, you know, could come down from the mountain once a month with medicinal and how I found him, how I was able to get to see him. It's another story, <laughs> but I took Michael to him and Michael was like, literally just had turned five years old and he gave me all these, uh, herbs for each one of them, different doses. I brought it back. And, uh, and then in 96 or 97, I think it was 96, a friend of mine called me up and he said, you know, you're looking for medicinal plants. There's this man coming in from South America that's going to give a workshop at Temple University. You might be interested in, you know, he's a shaman. And so I took Joseph, Joe, my husband, and a friend of ours, the four of us went to his workshop at Temple University. And this guy began to talk about this plant. And I was fascinated, but at the end of the whole workshop, he said, everybody close your eyes. He turned out the lights and you close your eyes, but he began to sing this beautiful melody. And then you opened up your eyes because you're curious. The room was completely bright. Lights are out and this room is completely bright. And I thought, I got to know what this is. 
for whatever for <laughs> whatever right. reason. And everyone eating the plant that he was talking about? No, no. There is all right. So there is a room of twenty plus people. It's like a normal college classroom setting, right? So it's, it's you remember it as well? Oh yeah, no. Yeah. All right. So she's so nine. All right. So this is ninety six, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm fifteen. Mm-hmm. All right. Specifically, what I can tell you is that this is a time period where, like, uh, you and I would have gone on a trip to Lehigh University with the varsity team. Remember, we all went out to Lehigh that day. Sort of. Okay, that was about three months after this. Okay. Okay. This, so this was my senior year, your junior year, and this is like spring before that. You're ten and fifteen. Your right. brother, but yeah. But it's early in the year in '96, and I'm and I'm fifteen, and my brother's ten. Right. So the fifteen wouldn't have been senior year for you. No, sorry, not senior year. It would have been my sophomore year. Yeah. And Paul took us to Lehigh because he knew some people out there. Okay. So like he knew the coach, so we got to go get like uh, training or something. Like training with the team at one of their practices or something like that. Anyway, we came back from Lehigh, and it was the first time that we ever sat down and had ceremony at the house. So, so like while you guys didn't know, <laughs> I was getting home from practices and games and coming home to somebody that my mom had brought in from South America and we were about to sit down and have full on jungle ceremony in the den. No, I mean, I, I, I think we kind of understood that something like that was happening, like something holistic or alternative medicine was happening there, but I so Temple, really um, we're in was. Temple University. The workshop is over, and this man, his name was Jorge, comes to the back of the room and starts talking to Joe, my husband. And he says, "Yeah, you got to remember, Joe is husband and Joseph is son." Right. Yeah. Okay. So he starts talking to Joe, and I said to him, "Joe said to me, he understood everything, but Joe's Spanish back is, kind, you know, not as good." So I said to, uh, to to Joe, "He's inviting us to come to a ceremony." And he goes, I can't do that. Now, the boys had an appointment at Will's Eye the next morning. No, two mornings later. This man invites me now to come to an ayahuasca ceremony the next night in Philly at somebody's house. Now, I don't know anybody. So I said to him, I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) And I come back to Philly the next day. And Joe said to me, and I said to Joe, I swear to you, if it's uncomfortable, I will be back in Jersey. I'm not, you know, so I was at an artist studio, you know, this loft and I drank this stuff. <laughs> and while I was in an altered state, you know, there were these two gentlemen, you know, doing yoga and I'm thinking, oh my God, I wish they would stop because you can feel everything. And then the shaman says in Spanish to me, Marirene, have good thoughts. And I thought, oh, geez, he's reading my mind. And then I know this sounds wild, but it doesn't really matter to me. I'm deeper into this. He's singing these beautiful melodies. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, the boys have an appointment at Will's Eye tomorrow. And out of nowhere in my vision, here appear their eyes inside. And I see all the arteries and everything flowing. And in my mind, I think, oh, they're going to be fine. They're tumor-free. This finished about 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And at the end of it, this shaman comes and says to me, I would love to invite you to come to Peru, Mm. you know, and and study with me. And I said, fine, fine. I left my number with the host. I meet them the next morning because Joe brought them into Will's Eye. And I said to Joe, I have to get home or I'll, you know, I'll pass out. I got to drive home. And then two weeks later, the host of this ceremony calls me up. So now he's coming down to Tom's River and giving a ceremony. So it was not what I, uh, what, I mean, I didn't know what to expect, but, but he was a, he was an apprentice. He was not a full flown, you know, full blown shaman, but we all worked, you know, every weekend he would come down and we'd do two ceremonies. And finally, Joe and Joseph just said no more. And Michael and I, he was a trooper. We kept going. But then I found through this guy that there was this other shaman in South America for whatever reason. Don't ask me. I can't remember the exact reason why it felt right to go to this other guy. So I went to Peru looking for this guy and he was expecting me. And... Lo and behold, he said to me, would you like an apprenticeship? I figured, what the heck? Sure, I'll take an apprenticeship. (laughs) To become a shaman? Not knowing what I was getting into. Right. And it began. 
the second day I was there. And from that point on, the story of the jungle becomes the thing. And now I'm traveling three times a year, you know, for several months at a time to study with him. And then the boys came, but they started drinking ayahuasca when they were 10 and 15 years old. If I would have known about ayahuasca before they were born or right after they were born, I would have given it to them. It's been super beneficial. Drop every day. As babies, really? I drop every day. Uh-huh. Yep, I would have done that. Yeah, without without any hesitation. And I believe that that was, uh, didn't cure them, but I think that it opened up their minds. I know it opened up mine. You know, we have everything inside within us. And interestingly enough, when I found this path in shamanism, I also met a Tibetan Lama. 87-year-old Lama in Howell, New Jersey. <laughs> of all places. Of all places. And I had been looking for Buddhism since I was, you know, younger, since prior to high school. Found him. So I started traveling together with Buddhism, which I'd rather call it mind training, a mind training practice and shamanism. And I began to realize that shamanism was missing something that mind training gave you. And shamanism was too worldly for me. I wanted something way beyond the basic world. And it just overlapped um, quite incredibly. My when And I completed the apprenticeship. My work enhanced tremendously by practicing these mind techniques. Uh, basic foundations, really. It's really not this, you know serious it's training them training the mind it's just to be a better person it's trying to be a better person i feel like a better person just listening to you you have a very soothing <laughs> voice you're kind <laughs> um but i think one of this i don't know, I call it a scene that that joe described while you guys were out there together was that when he told you I don't remember the exact wording, but you don't have to take care of me. You don't, you don't have, have to, to make us better. Us. You don't have to save us. Do you remember that the way that he remembers it? Oh, my goodness gracious. You know, he it was like a relief. You know, I never knew what they were thinking. You know, here I was always worried that one of them was going to die. Um, and in my in my small mind, in my in my because I wasn't a doctor or anything, you know, when this happened and when I found out it was genetic, because Michael looks more like his father, I thought it was going to be Michael who I was going to lose. So I know I became overprotective over Michael way too much um, because I, I really thought that he was going to... Genetics doesn't work that way. But it took me a long time to really realize that. And then what I didn't know either is that they thought they were going to die, but they never. I never heard them tell me that. I heard it later on in life... And I never told them I thought they were going to die. There were certain things that I don't think we really ever touched on. And again, those were not things that I discussed with Joe because I felt terrible that, you know, is he feeling guilty? You know, he's the carrier. This has just been on and on. I mean, we were in the hospitals constantly for the first few years. And for the beginning, Joe couldn't go, you know. And then as they got older, Joe took over. I no longer went to Will's Eye with them. It was like their little trip. And their little hangout thing, you know, they would leave together. <laughs> Which was kind of cool. And yeah. It's, you know, in its own right, it was nice to develop that a little bit. Sure. You know? you know, it was no longer, you know, me. And and I was relieved of that because being a female, having to deal with doctors, you know, and I had my fights with doctors and, you know, I was their advocate and they were not going to, it, it, you know, they were not going to tell me, you know, how they were going to do things for them. So I did have a lot of you know, certain fights with certain doctors. But you took control of the, I of took the situation and you had to. From yeah. the moment this yeah. happened, from the moment Michael was diagnosed, mm-hmm. and I said, from the moment that Michael was diagnosed with his, the tumor that he had, and the doctor said, and I told the doctor about Joe, I said, impossible, three months ago, this is what happened, how can this be? And he said, this is what this is. From that very moment... Um, my life became for them. It still is. Yeah. You know, it right. doesn't stop. It doesn't change. But it's not, a, it doesn't consume me anymore. I think about it all the time, but I'm not afraid of it. Mm-hmm. 
when Joseph had his experience in 2018, I remember the only thing Michael said to me was, I, you have to sleep. And I said, I can't. I've got this incredible amount of adrenaline. You know, but he said, you've been up for days. And I said, I'm okay. You know, as long as you're ready to catch me when I fall. But I had accepted that the worst was coming with Joseph's situation at that time. And nothing else mattered. You know, I was just so focused on his best care. No one else was existent, see? And maybe that's a, a flaw of a caregiver, or maybe it is my own flaw. But I uh, I don't see anything else but that. No one else matters. Including yourself, though. Including myself. Right. Yeah. And that's the hard part. Yeah. You must have lost yourself and your own identity within all this. The interesting thing is that I recovered it when I went down to South America and studied shamanism and I became a shaman. It took a five-year apprenticeship. It was really tough. That was a journey. That was a mission for you. Mission. Yeah. But it turned around because it was healing me. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, meeting this Lama, though I wanted to bring them all this incredible, you know, which I still do, it really became about my own healing because you can't do anything for anybody else unless you're well. So I strengthened. And the interesting part about it now is Joseph walking into the situation with this alliance, which that's another story again, doing this translation with him is almost uh, another part of my world that needed to be healed. I didn't know about it. Uh, it was brought up to my attention that that needed to be healed. What was that? Well, I started the foundation many moons ago. Yeah. And then it was absorbed by someone else. And I didn't realize, to me, it was like, you know, I don't have the time to fight with anybody. You know, this is not why I did this. But I didn't realize that I needed to heal. So interesting enough, here, he, it's, if, you, if parents don't pay attention to their children and what the children have to teach them, it's got a problem there. Mm. And I've always been the type of mother who has always tried to listen to what they have because I know they have something to teach you mm. till this very moment. Same thing with Michael. Michael teaches me other things, but this, but it's, it's part of a healing process that I was not aware of. It just has happened again. And I've been meditating through meditation, all these things come up and I realize, wow, that needed to be closure. You had to put closure to that. You had to put closure to that. Still little pieces still open of 32 years ago. So going back to your initial question, mm -hmm. when he told me not to worry about it, and I don't know if they took turns or they did it together, because, you know, I never know which one is talking to me. You do sometimes <laughs> look so much alike and so, so much alike. I don't know. It was a relief. You know, it was just like this weight got taken off of me because I realized, oh, my goodness, of course not. I can't save them. I can help their minds and strengthen whatever I bring, but I can't save them. I was trying to save them. I wanted to save them from everything, but it was a relief. It was just a, it was an awakening. What did you realize based on that? Did you see something in him that let you know that he's going to be okay or like he I, was able to stand on his own or is that what it was? That's really what it was. You know, it was part of their makeup, you know, and I remember that they, that they had mentioned that they used to name their tumors and I used to think <laughs> that's so crazy. They get all their tumors have names, you know. And, but it was really at that point, it was really, yeah, they, they can manage this. You know, they don't, they don't need me to be what I've been all along. They need me for different things. Not, not feeling unneeded. That wasn't it. It was just, it was just, it was a relief that they were going to be okay, that they could handle it, that I could die today. And I know that they would be okay. Mm -hmm. That was it. Just acceptance that I could just die and I'd be happy. Like you've done enough. Yeah, they're yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. They can move on with their own lives and they can do what they have to do and they can take care of it, you know, which I always felt they couldn't. And we were in the jungle, by the way. <laughs> Speaking of the jungle, we were in the first one. We were in Baoyan. We were down the river together in the wet season. Yeah, yeah, we were in Mosquito City alligator infested water for a few hours to get to where we were going to have a political <laughs> argument 
with multiple villages. Remember, they were fight. They were fighting about whether or not to let the government in. We got to be part of this. Like, all, like we went down there for medicine, and this all starts with you know VHL. And mommy and I are on our very first. I had just found so in. Uh, geez, back to the timeline, right? So eighty nine, Papa ninety. Michael with his eye and we all get diagnosed with VHL. So 90, 91, 92 is all just chock full of surgeries and appointments and blood, all the blood work and scans and everything over and over and over. Will's Eye Hospital, National Institute of Health. Locally here at Community, they put us up for a couple of days so they could like scan us and collect samples after surgeries or something like that. Uh, and then in 93, right? 93, you started the foundation? Things no, had started. It, it was you started it that I early. I started it that okay, early. Okay, good. So that's important because that's right. Ninety three is the alliance. Yeah, the Sorry. amendments. The, yeah, the, the amendments in our five hundred one c three came about in in ninety one. But I started all the movement in ninety. Okay. Right after, uh, right after I found out what this was, and Dr. Zabar and the Library of Congress, it just happened immediately. But we didn't get our filing. Uh, I think you know it was ninety one. It took about six months. You had to write all these, you know. So your husband gets diagnosed and goes through brain double brain surgery. Your sons go through a barrage of eye surgeries and everything else we just talked about. And within 15 months, you've already got the filing for a 501c3. I hope you know how extraordinary that is. Seriously. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I, I think so. I, 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 it takes people years to put together a, yeah. a foundation and get the funding and I everything a, put I together. I had a really good friend who, you know, she, she wrote most of the amendment. The, uh, yeah. It was just incredible. It was, I was just on a mission. But that's my personality, you know? I just go for it. Tomorrow's don't come. You have to get it done. And you put And a, then it was, the, my, it was my children. Yeah. So you're not going to stop. So you so, put so much out into the universe. And you can talk about putting it out there and like being confident or whatever. Forget about being confident. How about being desperate and motivated true. and proactive? And you just put yourself out there in all these different places and and you know, angels get lucky, good fortune, providence, however anybody wants to explain the people who you came across that made certain things possible. Like none of that happens if you don't go out there just full throttle and running towards all. So you went back home to Latin America and you got a foundation together and you went to the national library, the library of Congress and meet all these folks down at NIH. And as soon as Papa gets better, the two of you go to Germany to meet with the world of doctors that actually know about VHL. I think that was it. I think that was 94. Right. 93. Yeah. I I was, I was in, yeah, 94 sounds right. Because that was the weekend that grandmom came up and we got taken care of by both our grandmothers at the same time because Michael and I were a handful. (laughs) I can't uh, imagine that. And my parents were gone. They were in Germany talking to doctors from Hawaii and Japan and the States from John Hopkins and somewhere in Europe. Oh, I can't remember where else. And you guys got to be there and we went off to a soccer tournament or I went off to a soccer tournament for a weekend with grandmas. Yeah. With grandmas taking yeah. care of us. It, 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 was was, like, it was like, they made it the most normal, like right. nothing was yeah, happening yeah. weekend. And then, you know, you find out later, it was like, where were you guys when I was in the Poconos? Right. And that's kind of where I was thinking is uh, where my mind was going is that at some point, maybe it didn't hit you till later in life, Joe, all the things that your parents were actually doing for you guys. But maybe that's part of why, Marietta, Maridene, Maridene, Maridene. You were able to let go when he told you that, because I think you instilled the, the the same type of values and determination in your sons. You modeled it. Well, I'm glad that they listen and paid attention because I think it's important to live life to its fullest. You know, no matter what. And you've always talked about trading off. You said it. You said yeah. it from the time I was little. You're like, one of these days, I should, I learned plenty from you now while you're growing up. But one of these days, we're going to trade places. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably for us in a lot of ways the first time we got to trade places, because before then, no matter what, 
and we had traveled here and there or whatever, but that was our first trip to the, to the Amazon. And it was our first real dive into leaving home for a while like that. And we have this moment four or five nights of ceremony in a row and I'm going through all my therapy and you're going through all your therapy. And I think it was probably the first time where we got to kind of trade off psychologically that way. We haven't talked about it really until until you the last the, you couple of years. You weren't the child but, anymore. Right. You, but, but at that, that first trip, you were not the child first, anymore. Right, first time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we swap places and no. you're the child. It just meant that we swap places out of those two characters right. to like where we could just be on this trip together as these two people. That's like, uh, I wouldn't say that's where our friendship started, Aww. but that was like, no, but that, I would say, no, that was, that, that was like the real defining moment to shifting from mother and son travel. Like I was the older brother. I was her oldest son. I was still one of her babies who had gotten sick. Right. And then we shift and now it's just like Joseph and Marirene who happened to be, mother and son and all these other things. Now they're in the backseat and now we're just these two individual entities that are kind of just on the same path, running the same adventure together. That's 2004. That's 15 years later, right? So for 15 years, you tried to save me. And for the next 15 years, we've just gotten to take care of each other. That's what it became, you right? Know, take care of each other, and then it just shifts again, right? Like, and then we can just go back and forth, like people do. Forth. Just yeah. yeah, but not so stuck, just stuck in that mother and son that I have to do everything for them. Your journey. I wasn't stuck. Just remember that. Oh, I did well, it, it always. It, it always felt like uh, you shifted pretty big after that, where a lot of your journeys became more about you because they could, like was, you said about with Maggie. Well, I, if I if I was not well, how could I take care of you guys? That really was all the that was the third shift, right? And then all of a sudden, the demand for what I was doing became bigger because other people needed this. So then it opened up. Same thing happened with Reiki. I brought it to you guys. It wasn't about getting these degrees, the certifications for a business. I did this because I wanted to bring them this work to them. But it opened up. People heard, oh, she's doing, I volunteered. And then all of a sudden here I was doing this as a living while I'm doing mortgages. I used to be called the out-of-closet shaman. <laughs> <laughs> when people found out that I did mortgages, but I was doing a shamanic ceremony, they thought, oh my God, that's really strange. I mean, two extremes. You had to stay in the closet because there's a bit of a stigma. Is that what it was? Well, shamanism, you know, the drinking of ayahuasca is not a very common thing. Living with a tribe for a while is not a very common no. thing. Yeah. And so I did a lot of traveling through the States doing ceremonies. And one day somebody asked me, what is it that you do for a living? And I said, oh, I work with my husband doing mortgages. I run the <laughs> the financial side in this. And it was the out-of-closet yeah. shaman because, you know, it was very rare when I started doing this in this country. And I had to be very careful because it was illegal. Mm. Now, ayahuasca is not something, now it's changed to the rules. You know, there's exporting and importing, you know, of plants, you know, but I don't do it anymore. So it's not a big deal to me to talk about it and be open about it. But once upon a time, but nobody ever stopped me when I brought the juice into the country. I, you know, I carried it. My son's carried. <laughs> we've been through. We've Nobody been through ever stopped us, you know. So, hot, as it were, it was all for good reasons. There was no yeah, right. malice behind it. Mm -hmm. Any of the craziest things that have ever been said during our journey that someone might not be able to handle or believe or think that maybe that's a little too much or who believes in magic. It's I've, it's all been verified. It's all been verified. And I don't know how you can go through customs that many times with that many things that you're not supposed to unless you're supposed to. I mean, we, I brought live plants in my suitcases. They were scanned. Right. And it wasn't like I was you. hiding I still, it. Right, right, right. You know? I still have the same Jansport yeah. backpack that I got for that trip because it went through and it's like a good luck bag. I, I would keep that thing with holes in it and ripped up forever. You know, my, my first trip... And I went alone when I came. I was down there for five weeks. And I mean, I came back completely changed physically, mentally. It was incredible. I brought back, I think, 
two five-gallon cans or three five-gallon can- gas cans filled with ayahuasca. You can't sneak those. Unmarked. No. <laughs> Unlabeled. Unlabeled. Five they, gallons. Yeah. The, the stewardess has put them above, you know, because I, I was not pe- checking it in. Well, the stuff starts fermenting. Uh-oh. And I, and I was dieting. These are specific diets that you do. I start getting really woozy and sick where the stuff is dripping. So I called the stewardess and I said, you know, my medicine, and I had told her that it was for external, you know, female use. And she, oh, don't worry, don't worry. They took it down. They brought these black bags, plastic bags. They took, they packed it up nicely for me so that I wouldn't lose any of it. I never hid it. I never told them what it was. Yeah. But... It no, was, but if, even in Latin America, you mentioned a woman's menstrual cycle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, maybe that was, that's, that was really smart. Yeah, what maybe that's I, what it was. What can I tell them that they won't ask any questions? I told them yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, but it happened. You know, after September 11th, I never did it again. I was afraid to do it. Yeah, because things changed I, I, after that. Yeah, a lot more scrutiny. Right. So then it came. It got shipped differently. You know, but I continued doing the work. But yeah, it was. Uh, it all started, you know, it was all about them. And yes, he, you, you shifted it. It took a shift. It, it, yeah. I entered a whole different. That trip shifted everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean that in a few different ways. That that travel to that place, that psychedelic experience, <laughs> that wild ride with my mom, that trip, <laughs> that trip changed everything. What did it change for you, Joe? Uh, well, for starters, it was a really big. So it, for me, the trip actually starts on Friday afternoon. We left on Sunday or Monday. And I came home from school from St. Peter's it's my freshman year. It's March. And I only remember March. Maybe, Maybe it was the like last week of March going to April because we were coming home from college for spring break. And I came home on Friday and I was on my way down to Luke's house in Forked River to play ball with you guys. Okay. Like, like the standard, no extras, right? It was like you, your brother, Luke, Tony, me, and whoever our one other was so we could have three on three. And we went down the street like we used to around the lake. Just hustle with some neighbors. Just go hustle with some neighbors, man. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, I come home, I'm, I'm like running around, changing clothes, I'm going to do my thing. I go down to play ball with you guys. They don't say anything. I come home from playing basketball and before I can go shower or do anything, both my parents are like, we need you to sit down. I had just had my MRIs and everything, maybe you know five or six days before that. So I, I knew something was up. But it had been five years since we had any tumors, either Michael or I at the time. And so the words, they found your first brain tumor were not pleasant. Um, So I was, I had just turned 19, freshman year college, and first brain tumor after some quiet years. So I went down a couple more times over the weekend. I just remember just playing basketball and going surfing and almost immediately as soon as the the next flight that was available we had already they had already booked the tickets and we went to Peru so that was the that's that trip that we're talking about how long so, after three days oh wow yeah so I find out on Friday that I've got my first brain tumor and the question posed was actually this is a better way to say it I come home from playing ball I find out that I've got my first brain tumor and the question posed by my mother was, do you want to leave for Peru on Sunday morning or Monday morning? <laughs> and I said, I'd like to leave Monday morning so I can go surfing on Sunday. Wow. Which is kind of always my answer. Yeah. So I don't even remember if there were any good waves. I just know that my ultimate move every time in one of these situations is to go be an assault. So we leave for Peru. I meet my new family. Guillermo and Sonia and Guillermito and I will go like go through the names of 15 people, but we've got a new family all like instantly when we get down there because my mom had already been down there. So they all the kids come running up and they're so happy to see Mari, 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 Mari. Um, short for Maridena, they just all call her Mari, right? So they just, um, 
they they come running up to me and I got, you know, little kids I've never met before climbing all over me like they're little brothers and sisters. And so I get sucked into this whole new world. And within however many hours of showing up to, to Pucallpa, Peru, to the first night we're there, we're right into it, right? This is like we're in mission mode. So first couple nights are our ceremony specifically built for me for dieting purposes. So like I'm sitting directly across from a shaman. There's nobody else in ceremony. This is not like his usual, you know, bring in a, a circle full of people like he may have. And so it's, it's him and me and my mom and probably Sonia, his wife caretaking for us. And there is, um, there's crying and vomiting and some some serious serious like gut wrenching hours of this is it's like a whole new version of this is my life is that's what you're watching or that's what's happening to you that's what's happening to me in ceremony and okay. it's kind of what i'm watching because right. some of the way the experience goes in a ceremony at least it has for me is that like you feel yourself experiencing it but at the same time it's almost like you're watching yourself experience it which is why i think there's this huge like anybody who starts talking about ayahuasca starts talking about all this therapy in such a short period of time and i think it's a lot of it comes from getting a first person and a third person experience of a story all at the same time. That's a, yeah, that's why you're though. usually not I and right. he, she, they, yeah. and and so yeah, there's this whole new perspective, and I think that's when I started getting to experience that you didn't contract something later in life, you didn't develop something later in life. This is not like failed organs causing problems or malignancies that invade your body or it's so it's it's like it's cancer but it's not it's tumors but that's not really the problem there's all this stuff about vhl that i didn't necessarily understand at the time and so without knowing the details i kind of start going from somebody who got sick to realizing that this is who i am and if i can look back on that now and say the thing that that really changed for me was that it was probably the first time that I could take ownership over being myself as not a VHL patient or a tumor survivor, but just, hi, I'm Joseph. And I've been a VHL patient for 30 years, right? Like that doesn't define me. Yeah. It's just built in. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Do you think that sort of out of body experience kind of allowed you to also consider what your what your mother was going through because I, like I've been, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately of like we're not even I think when we're younger we're so absorbed in our own worlds and we don't really consider what other people are going through so maybe you hadn't spent any time thinking about what your mother was going through through all this do you, do you think that's kind of what led you to say mom like I got this yeah because we all right so when you're, yeah, all right, so just in general, little kids have this super ego and everything's me, 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 mine, mine, mine. You have to like really teach kids to share. Mm -hmm. We won't talk about how that's an American problem. That's <laughs> another conversation. <laughs> the super ego comes from the adult, not the child. Seen it way too many times. Kids born into an environment that is communal learn very quickly to be communal because if we're all cool, everything's better. If I'm good and you're not, there's a tremendous imbalance. And like, they don't really get the words for it till later, but kids are quick to take care of each other if you just make make it so, right? In our world, and unfortunately, I think this has actually created a lot of like, I don't wanna call myself a narcissist, but I think I have developed over the years a lot of narcissistic tendencies, behaviors, habits that I've had to deal with because I went from growing up in an environment where I was doing my homework in English and my homework in Spanish. I was getting up and I was learning to clean the house and wipe down the toilets and take care of my little brother and be a good, you know, just just a good boy, right? And, and in all the ways that my mother and learn how to, <laughs> yeah, and and spend time in the kitchen and learn what things taste like and just like, yeah, and just like grow up as a whole kind of person. And all that changed one day because 
VHL hit us and it hit us so so hard so young that mom got overprotective, mom got defensive, dad was like do whatever the hell you want guys. I'm not ever going to stop you from doing whatever you want and give you everything ever again. I'm so sorry I gave you this. Didn't matter if it wasn't his fault, right? So hands off and things stayed like strict and disciplined for the most part when we were kids because we were still kids. But there was no more concern for out there. Mm. Everything was about, and it and it was and it was. Fortunately, it was us. It was always me and Michael, so it was never like me, 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 I, I, I. Right. It was always me and Michael. Mm-hmm. So at least I ha- always had this sense of somebody else being really important to me. But how many eye surgeries did I just go through? How many bouts of anesthesia and, and going under and waking up did I just go through? And without thinking, me, 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 I, I, I my whole world became very much about me. And it wasn't my whole world in the first place before that, but now it's my whole world. And my whole world is actually me and Michael, my whole world. And even my dad being sick with VHL, he wasn't really sick with VHL. Fortunately for him, this has been a really smooth ride since then. And, you know, fortunately for us, this has been a really smooth ride for him since then because he's been a breadwinner. And when my mom has been able to step away and learn these other things when they weren't necessarily financially valuable at the time, but they were so spiritually valuable and the tools that we were gaining were going to keep us alive, somebody was there to make some money. If dad hadn't gotten better or had to keep having surgeries, mom doesn't have the time to go do this and bring all this other stuff to our life, mm-hmm. which puts us in who knows you know, what kind of position to not be able to handle stress, manage more surgeries, stay positive. Anyway, little lost. Bring me back, Aaron. <laughs> I was going to make a joke that you probably won't appreciate. No, nah, bring it. Because I'm thinking you wouldn't have been able to have all this time <laughs> to discover new things and uh, and save your children. That was your mission. But it just reminded me of a conversation I had with my mom one time where uh, there was this song. Do you remember uh, the City High song, which is Wyclef and this, this, um, this other, I can't remember her name now, but... What would you do if your son was at home? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. And daddy's growing in that lockdown. Yeah. I ain't got a job now. You know what I'm talking about. Yep. So I go, I was a kid and I was like, Mom, what would you do? And she she was like, Honey, I'd be out there hooking. Because <laughs> 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 oh, she's man. a goofball, but whatever. That's awesome. Uh, so, but it, it's the same thing. Like you would have picked that up and done whatever you could to make money to support the family or whatever instead of that. So it's like, it, it's all these little things that are so definitive, the butterfly effect, right? If one thing doesn't happen, then this doesn't happen, right? So, yeah. If dad goes down hard and stays down hard or had died, does mom become the loan officer? Right. Right. What do you do? You certainly don't have time to just go off to the jungle, not quite knowing when like address, you know, and, and addressing your, your feelings and your intuition. So this is a really big deal that he stays, you know, stays behind. Right. And like he manned this fort so that she could go man that fort. And now we've got this, you know, they've got this two layer effect. <laughs> Right. Things are relatively stable at home, which is necessary for home to function. And there are new and exciting and very necessary things that need to be brought back home. Otherwise, home's going to be a disaster anyway. So like without those things all happening, we don't do as well as we do for the rest of our lives. It's an incredible balance. Yeah. And so... I always bring up the word providence. I love I love that things have all this like wild sense of timing and doors closing and doors opening so smoothly a couple of times that really like changed the entire paths of our lives together. I totally believe in that. Just the energy of bringing people together sometimes. You and I start this show. I haven't seen your mother in years. <laughs> I know. And I go to my nephew's soccer game on a Saturday. It's a beautiful day, so I don't feel like going home. I had met you earlier in the beach. That right, m- right. I met you in the morning, go to see my nephews play soccer. It's a beautiful day. I don't feel like going home. I'm going to go take a walk on the boardwalk. Maybe I'll just pop in sawmill, get a slice. I'm there for 10 minutes, and then I hear, is that Aaron over there? And it's, <laughs> and it's your mother. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't seen you in 20, let's say 20 years. Easily, yeah. Yeah. 
sometimes the universe and the energy just comes together. It's meant to be. It is. It really is. So yeah. no coincidences. So so providence. Definitely. Yeah. Why do you like that word? Because 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 look it up and read it to us. Okay. I love having all these toys handy. I have my I have my phone on airplane mode so that I don't get interrupted because I'm like a squirrel and shiny thing. Is it spelled like Rhode Island? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, that's definition of providence. Often capitalized. Divine guidance or care. The quality or state of being provident. That's all we got. All right. Well, we'll just work off of that for Divide a minute. Divine guidance or care. All right. You say universe. Some people say God. Sure. So everybody has different words for the God part. But whatever it is, like we're all here. We're all breathing the same air. We're all going through a similar experience. We're all living our heroic lives. We're literally the three of us in the same room right now talking about how these pieces in our in our own personal timelines came together in such a way that after 20 some years we all see each other on the same day within the same few hours at the same place in one of our favorite places from our childhoods and our adulthoods right like all these little things that kind of mean a little bit to each of us that all kind of come together all of a sudden to make this right so like so define divine guidance the universe somehow because you were putting this energy out there and you're putting your energy out there and I'm putting my energy out there some kind of proactively and you're going to end up somewhere with it and we were all headed in similar directions anyway and now we know where to get the best slice of pizza right <laughs> the jersey shore <laughs> Ah, I remember when it was a dollar twenty-five. Right. Oh, Coke with it, you know? I remember when it was a dollar, <laughs> and they made it a dollar twenty-five to break that second dollar, yeah. so that you would send your kid with your seventy-five cents next mm. door to the arcade. Mm. That was when when Donna Frio bought the arcade and was like, "Oh, brilliant! That's smart. It was brilliant. It is. Yeah. Well, you know what happened? Seventy-five cents turned into a five-dollar bill, and nobody walked away from Street Fighter." <laughs> <laughs> 